Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly look at the world of Scottish politics. I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Holyrood, and on this edition of the podcast, we'll bring you an interview with Pam Duncan Glancy, a Labour MSP and the first permanent wheelchair user to be elected to the Scottish Parliament. Before that, I'm joined by journalists Jenny Davidson and Andrew Learmans to discuss what's been happening over the past few days. And Andrew, uh, COVID continues to, to dominate the news agenda, um, both both in Scotland and across the UK. Um, but but it looks like we're we're at least past the peak of um, of cases for the moment in Scotland. Yeah, it does. So the latest figures have us on 1,600 new cases, which is far down where we are at the start of the month when we're looking around 4,000 cases. Um, it is worth pointing out that today's figures still represent, you know. Uh, significant numbers and our, our test positivity rate is still around 9.2%, I think it was today, which is way above the, the 5% rate the World Health Organization says shows that an outbreak is under control. Um, you know, that we had 13 deaths today as well, and there were still a number of people in intensive care and over 500 people in, in hospital, which is still, you know, uh, fairly high numbers. But it does look as if the rollout of the vaccine has weakened that link uh, between the virus and hospitalisation. Um, uh, so I think the problem now is is continuing the rollout of that vaccine uptake. Uh, everyone in Scotland over the age of 18 has now been offered their, their first dose, but we're still just at roughly about 90% of the whole population. Um, I mean, 9% is pretty good. And if you talk to public health experts, I think Linda Bold said this maybe in the podcast last week, um, you know, uh, this level of a turnout for a non-mandatory jab is, is phenomenal, but it still means there's half a million people out there who are unjabbed. Yeah, and one of, I mean, one of the things I didn't realise until today was that they, they've closed the hydro in Glasgow as a, a vaccination centre, which seems seems a bit premature. Yeah, the, the Louisa Jordan. So, um, uh, just to be uh, completely factually accurate, it wasn't the hydro. It was the what? Oh, no, it was the hydro. Was it the hydro? Oh, I, I thought you. I thought you went there to get your vaccination. You should I go. Did. I did. I did. <laughs> I was about to pick you up and say it was the SCCC, but it wasn't. It was the hydro, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the 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 story is that we need to get ready for COP twenty six, which is just you know coming to Glasgow uh, in the next few months. But there have been some questions going. Well, sure, that would be a good that would be a good excuse. But why are there still you know a big wrestling event happening in the next few weeks and mm. lots of pop concerts happening? So so yeah, I am yeah my second dose is going to be at the uh, which I'm getting on Sunday. Uh, I'm going to the mosque this time. So all right, yeah, yeah it's interesting. And, and, and Jenny, um, Andrew and I were just saying before we came on air that this is traditionally the, the sort of silly season for, for news stories. But obviously, with COVID around, there's not really a lot of room for silly season stories in the way that we would usually get during parliamentary recess. But one that could potentially fall into that category was um, the row over um, cross-border train services yesterday, which started off seeming quite insignificant, but then actually turned out to be a proper uh, political row. 
That's right. I mean, we're we're not obviously getting the joke story, so I think we're still in too serious a situation. And, sure. and there's there's enough going on. I mean, these kind of the silly season stories always sort of fill in that gap. And of course, Westminster is still sitting. It's only the Scottish Parliament that's uh, finished for the summer. But but yeah, so the cross border train route um, that seems to be some kind of communication failure on somebody's part, but it's unclear who. So we had LNER claiming they'd uh, had an agreement from Transport Scotland that it was fine to follow the English rules in Scotland um, on train journeys. And then Transport Scotland saying this wasn't the case and LNER need to pull themselves together and, and you know, give the correct information. So in some ways it is a minor point, but it's, it's demonstrating, you know, one of the wider problems with opening up again and also with all things to do with travel with different rules it's not not just obviously this is in particular with different rules now between England and Scotland but that's Mm. going to be the case with different rules for travel across different countries that's going to be ongoing probably Mm. from now on for years in, in different ways there'll be different rules either from um different businesses, transport operators or, say, accommodation um, and different countries as well. And and these can keep changing. And obviously, we've got this issue now that the rules within England are a lot more liberal and um, have been loosened up a lot more than in Scotland. And, and you know, perhaps it will go back to being the same Scotland will um, have the same rules as England at some point in the future. But but obviously, with with different regimes making different rules, this is going to be an ongoing problem mm-hmm. with um, any kind of cross border activity. Of and and it's going to be a bit of a nightmare actually for transport operators for how you align with different government rules. And I mean, our, you know, our train operators crossing borders, not just in the UK, but you know, across Europe, perhaps going to and across the world, going to have to have you know different rules as they as they cross the border. Um, but in this case. Yeah, it, it seems to be something that's that's going to be resolved. LNER is going to have to have a look again at its its policy, and there there may be a strange thing where passengers will um, have to wear masks and sort of distance up to Berwick upon Tweed, and then things will change across the border, which seems bizarre. But I think that's that. This is the strange new world we're in now. So, um, yes, it's silly season, but a different kind of silly season mm. from normal, perhaps. Mm. And and Andrew, um, we uh, we're recording this uh, before we're expecting a, a, a television interview with um, Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's uh, former spokesman. Um, he's already made some allegations about about Boris Johnson. I mean, do do you think do you think this stuff? cuts through with the public or do you think people are just so sort of jaded and fatigued with COVID that, you know, it, it doesn't really make much of a dent? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't know that I know the answer to it. We saw an opinion poll today which suggests that the Tories are still, you know, about 10, 11 points ahead of, of Labour, uh, the UK, UK-wide poll. So, I mean, I, I clearly... I don't know if it's having much of an impact on, on Boris Johnson, but as you said, the interview's on tonight, and we we haven't you know heard the full seen all he's got to, to offer Dominic Cummings. So the stuff he's sort of uh, or the stuff the BBC have published already is is quite explosive. The talks about you know the Prime Minister saying that uh, you know he wasn't too worried about COVID you know killing off the over eighties. Uh, him sort of making a joke about you know he basically made a joke about the median age of people who die from COVID being above life expectancy. So, you know, get COVID and live longer. Um, you know, uh, uh, there was also um, 
one of those uh, one of those stories which might harm his base was uh, the uh, that he wanted to go and visit the Queen, according to Dominic Cummings. The Downing Street have flatly denied this, but at the start of the pandemic, the start of March, he wanted to keep up his regular audience with the Queen on a Wednesday morning. And Dominic Cummings pointed out, well, you know, there are people in this office who are isolating. You could go and give the virus to the Queen and kill the Queen. And Boris just went, well, okay, I suppose I better not then. Um, but. <laughs> But I mean, it just it just shows you what a kind of bizarre uh, political environment we're now operating in, where a guy like Cummings can make, you know, an incredible allegation, and we have to say it is it is just a, an allegation at this stage, or him him making a claim that basically the prime minister is willing to put people's lives ahead of his own political career, and it doesn't actually seem to affect his popularity with the public. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was that was one of the. The, the the other big revelations was, uh, well, according to Cummings, was that Dominic, uh, there was a Boris Johnson said his real boss was the Daily Telegraph. So yeah, <laughs> it's number ten. Is the Prime Minister making policy to to appease uh, the right wingers in his his own party and the right wing press? Yeah, I know you mentioned that um, opinion poll, uh, Andrew. They're, they're, you're also hearing some more worrying news for for Labour. Yeah, so this has just come out in the last sort of couple of hours. Uh, Labour are skint. They, uh, according to uh, the general secretary, uh, he told staff at a meeting today that their party reserves are down to uh, one month's payroll, which is a, a very precarious situation for for any organisation to be in. So it looks like there's going to be large-scale redundancies. Uh, it looks at least 90 jobs are at risk, which is roughly a, a quarter of all party-employed staff, which would be a, a huge, a huge dent to Labour. Uh, um, you know, the, the, the saying is partly because of, of members that they've lost, uh, because they've had to fight three general elections in the past six years, uh, as well as a, a string of you know, very expensive uh, legal cases. They, they paid out a six-figure sum um, about a year ago uh, in a case brought by, I think it was seven former staffers um, and a BBC journalist, wasn't it, uh, after the party accused them of, uh, or defamed them, I think it was, wasn't it, in the the, the famous Panorama investigation to, to handling of anti-Semitism. So, yeah, it's a, 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 it seems to be a very worrying situation for Labour. Yeah, um, one employer that uh, is hiring people, however, Jenny, is the Scottish government. There was a um, story in the Times today that um, the government has now... Um, almost 55 full-time equivalent media roles, which is more press officers than the BBC has journalists in Scotland. Um, I mean, is that is that a state of affairs that we should be worried about, do you think, as, as, as journalists and, and just the public at large? I think probably, you know, in, in the current context, worried might be putting it too strongly, but um, certainly it's um, something to ask questions about. I mean, if, if that had been the number throughout perhaps there would there would be less um to wonder about but in fact it's it's the fact that uh, the number of press officers has increased quite substantially i think it was by about 40 percent was the figure um mm-hmm. since around 2016 so you've got to wonder why they needed that many more press officers than they used to do that would be the question and yeah, there, there has been a bit of a joke, certainly among political journalists in Scotland, that there's actually more press officers working for the Scottish government than there are journalists um, asking questions of the Scottish government. And uh, and that that was thought to be an exaggeration. But then we, you know, you wonder now, is that almost actually literally the truth? And you mm. see uh, more and more journalists actually going to work in, in communications and things. And it's obviously a lot of it is about the, you know, state of, finances within journalism struggles within journalism 
But yeah, you do have to question why the Scottish government needs that many more press and communications people Mm -hmm. than it did before. And particularly when questions have been asked repeatedly about um, freedom of information and its its responses to freedom of information and, um, you know, questions about, you know, how transparent and open it's it's being and, you know, how obstructive sometimes to, to questions, you know, are those people there to aid communication in terms of making information available to the press and the public um, or are they there actually to to kind of block and to to spin on behalf of the government and you know it it could be a bad thing or a good thing depending what role they're playing. Mm -hmm. Yeah I mean as you say it's potentially more a a reflection of the the state of the media in Scotland than it is necessarily a a reflection on the state of the PR industry in in the Scottish government. Yeah, that that's right. But again, come back to the point: why is the number increased so much? And you know, what are they? What are they all doing? Are you know? Yeah, it is about are they facilitating clear communication and and sharing information with the public, or yeah. or are they spinning? Okay. All right. Thank you both. And uh, now for our interview with Labour MSP Pam Duncan Glancy. Pam, we like to think of Scotland as an uh, inclusive and accepting place, but even before you're uh, taking your place at Holyrood, you said you were showing a, a lack of respect uh, at the Glasgow count. Yeah, um, and, and we do, and everyone likes to think of ourselves as an inclusive and op- an open place, but too many people, um, disabled people in particular, experience oppression and discrimination across Scotland every day. And what happened at the election account was an example of the sort of thing that happens on a daily basis, several times a day, to um, disabled people across the country. Um, the difference was, of course, that I found myself in the same room as the chief executive of the organisation who had um, done uh, the, the kind of the, the discriminatory practice, and I also found myself in the same room as most of the Scotland's um, Scotland's press. So, both of those things, <laughs> uh, both of those things, I guess, put me at an advantage um, because it meant I was able to sort of pull, pull them up about it immediately, draw attention to it, and show people across. Scotland, why it wasn't an acceptable practice. What that does show to me is that um, because in tw- within 24 hours they resolved the situation and everything was fine the next day. So when you get when you get it right, when you speak to disabled people, when you involve them in decisions, you can often avoid things happening. And so what they did was they looked at what they did, they asked me what they needed to do the next day to get it right, and they did that. What happens to di- disabled people across Scotland? Um, every day is that they are not empowered in those situations and so they they are discriminated against people disrespect them they can't get in and out of buildings they're told that they have to go around a different way nobody nobody has the right information for them but they have nowhere to go because they don't find themselves empowered or in the in the same room as the chief exec in the press and that's why it's incredibly important to me that disabled people are represented in all aspects of society including in parliament I mean, have, have things got better though? I mean, what what was it like growing up in, in Glasgow as a, as a wheelchair user? So, yes, things have definitely improved. Um, I didn't grow up in Glasgow, but I spent my uh, my summer holidays and everyone uh, kind of laughs when I say this. We used to come to Glasgow for our summer holidays. Um, <laughs> I, I grew up in the north of Scotland right. um, and my dad's family were from Glasgow. So, um in fact, in all of our school holidays, my sister and I and my mum and dad came down to, to Glasgow to, to spend um, the, the holidays with our, our family. 
Um, it was a very different experience back then. So, for example, if we took the train, um, I sometimes had to travel in the guards' van um, along with the bikes and luggage and sometimes dogs, um, which is great because I love dogs, but also not the sort of place that you want people to necessarily be traveling. They're not designed for, for people. Um, and now we're in a situation, of course, where that would be unthinkable. Um, but what we aren't is a million miles away from an inaccessible tra- transport system, of course. So whilst there's no longer the guards van scenario, we are still expected to, to, to give notice when we're going to travel. We're not able to get on and off at every station. Sometimes we, ca- um, we get on a train and there isn't someone there to get us off. Um, and then, of course, there's buses um, that are inaccessible and so forth. And if you live in Glasgow, only two stops on the subway are accessible. So some of these things um, haven't moved on a lot at all. And I read that when you were at school, um, basically your your school wouldn't take you on the, the class trip to Disneyland Paris, so you ended up going on a pilgrimage to Lourdes instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so my, my family and, uh, and I, my sister and I grew up with, without any um, religion, so it was a, it was a surprise um, <laughs> to be going to Lourdes. I had a great week, it was fantastic. Um, they, they, yeah, it was it was unfortunate. Basically, my mum had this kind of real urge and stridently um, strived to make sure that my sister and I had the same experience as best we could. So, if we were going to friends' houses, I was going with her. Um, if she, you know, if she was doing something, I was getting to do it, even if it wasn't accessible. My mum would find a way to make it so, so that I had um, as close to the same the same experience as, as she did. Um, my sister's only thirteen months younger than me, and the 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 situation with the school trip was that it would would have probably cost quite a lot of money um, for them to have paid for someone to come along and give me the care and support I needed. My mum didn't particularly like flying, wasn't interested in going abroad really, um, but also didn't want to hang about on a school trip with me and I probably wouldn't have wanted her to. Yeah. Um, so the, the situation she faced was I wasn't going to get to kind of go abroad in the same way that my peers were. So she approached social work and asked for a solution and, and that was the one that came up. Um, my family didn't have enough money to to take us abroad. Um, so it's not like they had any other really real alternative but to do that. Um, and I didn't know it was a pilgrimage to Lourdes until I was on the bus, uh, on the bus and, and then handed a T-shirt that said so. Um, so it was, yeah, it was quite quite an experience. I had a great week, but again, it shows the sort of lengths that families have to go to to try and give disabled people the same experience as non-disabled people. So you, you didn't realise that your, your trip was to a religious pilgrimage site until you were actually on the bus uh, on the way there. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. Um, and then there was um, there was a religious element to it, and a lot of people mm-hmm. who were there um, were there for that particular purpose. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, it's, it's, it wasn't my thing until then, um, but, you know, I had a good week. And we also um, did a bit of accessible skiing on the Pyrenees, which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had picnics and, yeah, had a great time and spent a lot of time with other disabled people, getting to know them as well, which was nice. And, of course, I was away from home without my family, probably for the first ever time that I'd been with any other adult other than my own family. So. But presumably that state of affair of affairs wouldn't be, wouldn't be tolerated nowadays. I mean, there wouldn't be that sort of accommodation made nowadays. I would have thought there would be other alternatives. I think that um, those trips still go ahead for various reasons, but I think there would be other alternatives now to disabled people at school wanting to go on school trips, mm. um, or I'd like to hope that there were. Yeah. And and what's it like being a, a wheelchair user uh, in the Scottish Parliament? Uh, obviously, you're the you're the first um, permanent wheelchair user to, to be elected to uh, Holyrood. And 
what's what's it actually like getting around the building? Because we know the the difficulties you had, obviously, at the Glasgow Count. Uh, is the Scottish Parliament any better? It's been absolutely brilliant so far. Um, the the staff from day one were outstanding. Um, we, myself and my carer, um, who who attended on the, the kind of first week through the induction, had been allocated a member of staff to basically escort us around the building. Um, which was really good because the the route that you take as a wheelchair user is slightly different at times to the route you take um, as a non-wheelchair user. So in order for me to be able to participate in all of the induction programme that the Parliament put on for new MSPs, I needed to have someone basically chaperone um, so that I could get to places quickly without kind of getting lost in the building. So that was, that was a really, really good thing that they did because... To me, part of the problem, I mean, the building itself is actually quite accessible. Um, it's, it's built to, to really good standards in that, in that respect. But where, where things aren't or where sometimes they fall down is the lack of information about the right route to take as a, as a wheelchair user. Um, and so that was a really, really good step that they took to make sure that, that they, they recognised that. They knew it might take longer, particularly, and it does actually, the route, even though I know it now, still takes a bit longer than a non-disabled person um, use, making the same journey because um, they're going a faster route. But at least they, they recognised that it would be much easier to have someone someone there. And that doesn't always happen. Things like information and support to do that can go a long way. So, for example, I had a, a meeting a couple of weeks ago with ScotRail and also with um, the SPT travel in Glasgow to talk about access to the rails and also to to the subway and sometimes where it just isn't possible to engineer a solution that means you can use it the other thing it can be really good is information that says this part is fully accessible this part is not and here is an alternative for you and you don't want to have to go wading through websites you don't want to have to go wading through screeds and screeds of material to do it you want just the information to be easily accessible to you so that you know what to do. And that's what the Parliament did, and they really embodied that. Um, and so I was really, really pleased with um, with all of that. They, and the staff themselves were outstanding. And in your, your maiden speech uh, in the Parliament, you, you spoke about the, the difficulties that, that uh, people with disabilities still endure in Scotland and, and the fact that they're more likely to, to live in poverty uh, still in, in 2021. I mean, what should the priorities be um, for the Scottish Parliament when it comes to improving the, the lives of people with, with disabilities in Scotland? I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, one of the, f- the first things I'd say is that the, the Scottish Government and the Parliament should be looking to implement a minimum income guarantee for everyone in Scotland. For disabled people, that means including an uplift to recognise the extra costs of being a disabled person. And I think that we have significant powers, social security powers in Scotland, to enable us to do that, not least the powers we have over disability benefits. But for other people like carers, um, unpaid carers, students, uh, people who work in precarious work, there are lots of things we can be doing with the powers we have just now to make sure that we all get up to a minimum that allows us to participate in society and to enjoy the human rights that we're all entitled to. Um, In addition to to the minimum income approach for everyone and that additional approach for disabled people, I think we also need to be looking at social care for disabled people because if you can't get out of bed in the morning, it's very difficult to to earn money, it's very difficult to claim access to benefits if you need them um, because you literally don't have the care and support you need to be able to get up in the morning. So we need to sort social care out. And actually, um, I fundamentally believe that we need to we need to look at how we fund it we need to have a conversation about that we need to we need to make sure that it's free at the point of delivery we need to make sure that we pay staff 15 pounds an hour so that they um, are well respected for the work that they do and we need to make sure that it's funded properly so that disabled people have access to social care that isn't just about feeding us getting us up in the morning um, and putting us to bed at night and washing and clothing us in between Um, it's about 
more than that we, you know we don't want to just live we, we genuinely like everyone want to thrive and if you want to lift disabled people out of poverty you're going to have to start um, doing things like that we also need to make sure that we um, close the disability employment gap and research this week um, around learning disability has shown that we're not set to do that to meet the the target of having that um having the the disability employment gap in Scotland because we're not doing enough on it. Um, we're, we're not, I don't think, um, using procurement appropriately to say if you're procuring, if we're using our public funds to buy anything, we should be making sure that people are employing um, disabled people or underemployed people in the local area as well. So there's loads of stuff we can do in terms of employability and in terms of social security to improve the, the poverty that disabled people experience. I mean, the SNP make a lot about uh, Westminster holding us back on some of this stuff. But do you, do you think that in, in their time in power, that the SNP has failed to use properly the, the powers they have at their disposal uh, under devolution? Yes, unequivocally. There, there are loads of powers that, that we have that we've not yet used. Um, and and we, we asked the government recently when they last met with the Department of Work and Pensions to talk about some of the reasons that they have said have caused the delay to implementation of the benefits and social security powers here. And they haven't met them since last year. Um, so, you know, we're we're now seven months into 2021 and uh, some months on, we've still not, the, the government haven't met the DWP to, to talk in detail about this. So if, if they're serious about changing the lives of disabled people in Scotland, like they say they are, and I believe they are, then they need to start putting their money where their mouth is and start putting um, putting in place the, the systems that are needed to be able to improve the lives of disabled people. And that includes looking at not just making sure that we safely and securely transfer people from the DWP system to the system that Social Security Scotland implements, but that we they take the opportunity in Scotland now to look at who's eligible for that benefit. How much is that benefit? So is it adequate? Is it accessible to the right people? Is it available to the right people? Is it appropriate? And that would be a human rights based approach to social security for disabled people. And all of these things haven't been done yet. And I think the delay that we've seen um, really is unacceptable because we, we don't have a Scottish Parliament to only have a DWP light. We have a Scottish Parliament with the powers that we have in Scotland and we fought a long time to get the, the additional powers in social security in Scotland. We have those to try and materially make a difference to people's lives and we need to get on and do it. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the bills being brought forward uh, in the current parliament is the assisted dying bill. And, and you said that that legislation would um, be dangerous for disabled people. Why is that? I think until we've addressed some of the real fundamental and systemic inequalities in society about um, that disabled people experience, we really need to be talking about improving their right to live and making sure that we have a right to accessible housing, accessible transport, social care that is, um, as I said earlier, free at the point of delivery, pays the workforce £15 an hour and meets disabled people's needs. And until we get all of that right, we're in, a, I think, in dangerous territory when we when we look at um, assisting people to die. I would far rather that our parliamentary time and resource and all the resources across Scotland were funnelled entirely to improving the lives of disabled people across Scotland, the significant numbers um, of disabled people across Scotland. So your your mind's not put at ease by some of the some of the safeguards that are um, proposed in that legislation. 
I, I honestly believe that the safeguard we need to this is the sort of society that doesn't create a hostile environment for disabled people in terms of benefit claimants, that doesn't create a hostile environment when it comes to trying to access social care, that doesn't have a hostile environment in terms of discrimination or hate crime or stigma. All of these things make it very, very difficult for disabled people themselves to value their own lives. And sometimes people can internalise this hostility. That's a dangerous place for us to be in. So we the, the safeguards in place would just need to be so fundamentally, structurally different across the whole of society that one bill alone, I don't believe, could do it. Now, in the run-up to the election, you replaced um, Holly Cameron as the Labour candidate after she um, she was dropped by the party for saying that Labour would respect the right to hold a second referendum. Do you, do you think she was wrong to say that? Um, you're not going to get me to, to um, talk about a comrade in, in, in those terms on this, I'm afraid. Um, what I think is that what we did in the, the election campaign was show that people all across Scotland were really, really fundamentally clear that they wanted us to pull together and focus the next parliament on the pandemic and the, and the recovery of the pandemic. And that's what, what Labour's offer at the election was. It's also what our focus is going to be over the next five years. I'm really, really excited, actually, about being in parliament at this point in time. Um, we had a, a meeting the other day with disabled people's organisations and one of the things I said was of all the times for me to have come into Parliament I'm really excited that it's this one because there are huge opportunities on the, the further devolution of social security powers, huge opportunities in terms of what we do to incorporate disabled people's rights into domestic legislation and of course other people's rights like LGBTQ people's rights and older people's rights and um, all the international treaties um, that exist in international legislation. We have an opportunity now, I believe, to, to make real those rights in Scotland and I hope that we seize that. We've also got a massive opportunity with the National Care Service. So the last year we've all collectively come through the, the trauma of, of COVID-19. And I, I honestly think that the public have have really, I mean, it's, it's been one of the worst years in, in living memory, I would, I would say. And this is now an opportunity for us to go to the people of Scotland and say, the last year has been really hard. We weren't able to see our family and friends like we could before. We weren't able to get out of our houses like we could before. We weren't able to hop on and off public transport like we could before. But for disabled people, that's been the circumstance for decades. And for people who live in poverty, those things have not been accessible to them either for decades. So actually, we're at a point in history, I believe, where the people of Scotland are ready to, to take the bold action that's needed to fundamentally change the Scotland that we live in. And that's why I'm incredibly excited about all of the things that we can do in this parliament around human rights, around disabled people's rights and around social security. But do you think there is momentum behind that kind of stuff? I mean, we, we hear this uh, rather kind of tired phrase now of building back better. Isn't there a risk that in this sort of rush back to quote unquote normality, people forget about a lot of that stuff and a, a lot of the kind of high-minded talk during the pandemic about building back a best, better society gets gets forgotten about as people return to their to their normal daily lives. I think that's where we have to be absolutely clear that that politicians in all parliaments and in, in, in local government have a, a leadership role here because we have to seize that moment. And actually some of the things that we've seen of recent from both governments I don't think are showing are, are, are really delivering the, the just recovery from COVID. So for example, the ending the universal credit uplift, um, you'll you'll have seen today that the um the, the parliament committees across the UK, the chairs of those committees have written to the Westminster government to say you, you need to, to keep the uplift in universal credit and incidentally apply it to legacy benefits. Because 
not doing that just shows that all the rhetoric in the last year um, of making sure we build back better and we have a, a just recovery from the pandemic is not is not realised. So there is a real need for politicians to step up to the plate and to show leadership on this, to seize that moment that I spoke about earlier across across Scotland and the UK and really change the, the structural um, ways that, that our society is, is holding people back. And presumably you don't think we can do all that and have a second independence referendum at the same time. I think we have to focus on changing the lives of people of Scotland and we need to do that by getting social care right. We've got the National Care Service and the government have said they're going to bring that as a bill um, to to the Scottish Parliament. I hope it will be announced in the the programme for government and that's a massive opportunity to change a lot of people's lives. So there's a lot that we can do with the powers that we have right now to improve the lives of people across Scotland. In the National Care Service, for example, there's an opportunity to improve the workers and the rights of the people who work in it as well as the rights of people who, who receive national um, social care. So we've got real big opportunity there to do that. We've also got a lot of opportunity within the social security system um, to change people's lives and those are the things we need to be focusing on um, right now in order to improve our lives. But does the Scottish Labour Party not have to recognise the fact that the majority of those elected to Holyrood um, along with yourself and me are, are for independent supporting parties? I think what we need to recognise is that fundamentally people want us to focus on getting our NHS back on track, getting social care back on track, making sure that the, so, the housing is available for people who need it. We need to address the drugs crisis. There are so many things out there that people would expect government to focus on relentlessly. And we can't do that um, if, if we're focused on something else that is constitutional. We spent a lot of time on constitutional politics in, in recent years. Um, what, what we now need to do is start looking at, at materially changing people's lives and using the powers that we have to do so. I mean, g- given them this, some of the issues you talk about uh, that, that are important to people, housing, social care, the NHS, I mean, traditionally that was that was labour, you know, that was very fertile ground for, for labour. Given, given the pandemic, the ongoing difficulties of Brexit, the controversy surrounding the Prime Minister, why is labour still languishing so far behind the Tories in the polls? I think we we have a lot of catching up to do. There's no doubt about it. Um, And as during uh, the leadership campaign and also during the election said that, that we need to look, if we were to look each other in the eye and look the the population in the eye, that they would expect different from us. But I think we've started to show that. So in Scotland, for example, we... Um, we have we have a Muslim leading the Scottish Labour Party, um, which is which is one of the first um, things that we've seen of of, of, um, of change in in our party. We've got the first wheelchair user in the Scottish Parliament elected um, through the Labour Party. We we are beginning to to not just change the the policies that we have, but the people that we have there to do that. And I think that will show that the Labour Party is serious about change across Scotland. And we do need to do that. Um, we need to listen to people in our communities, and we need to offer the bold, radical alternative. Do you think the, the the labor leadership at a national level though could have been could have been better during the pandemic? I mean, there's been a lot of um, going along with what the government's doing. I think as part of a kind of long term strategy, not not to be seen to be uh, undermining a kind of national effort in a time of crisis. But really, given, given the the difficulties this country's gone through over the last year, you would have expected the opposition to be in a stronger position at this point, would you not? I think there are huge opportunities, as I said, um, for us to come out of this pandemic and really make sure that we have a, a just recovery. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I've looked on um, out from outside Parliament and now inside Parliament and thought, 
oh, we need to say this, we need to do more, we need to go faster, we need to go harder on all of these things. And actually, um, it's a very, very difficult line, I think, um, to tread, particularly in the midst of a pandemic. Um, I It will not surprise um, my colleagues in the Labour Party to hear that I think we should be going bolder and faster um, at times. Uh, some, of them, uh, some of them will be well aware of that. Um, but I think what we've had to do is tread a very, very careful line. There are opportunities now that I think now that we are coming coming through the the the, vi- the, the virus um, and into a more um, a more normal way of living that we we need to now start pushing the bold agenda that the Labour Party is about. We need to start saying right now is the time to start doing these things, and I hope that we will do that. And I believe that in Scotland, um, we absolutely will do that. And Anas has been really clear about his focus over over the next five years. At mm. uh, UK level, though, were you more likely to go bolder and faster under Jeremy Corbyn than you are under Keir Starmer? I think they're both very different types of leaders. Um, I think they'll both bring different things to the Labour Party. Um, and I believe I believe that they will um, now, the, the Labour Party across the UK, um, will be looking at doing as much as we possibly can to radically and boldly change the lives of people across the UK. Uh, do, you st- do you still think um, Keir Starmer is uh, the right person to take the party into the next general election, given given where we are with the polls at the moment? I think the next general election is uh, a number of years away yet, I hope. We've had so many elections in recent <laughs> time that um, the notion that that would come before it should um, would be uh, a, a bit of a surprise to a lot of us, I'd say. Um, so I think it's um, it's very very you know it's very early to say what what this the situation is going to be um, at that time. But at the moment, um, the Labour Party is is on strong footing. It's on strong footing in Scotland, and I think our leader um, in in Scotland and us has been incredible. Um, and the way that we will go forward will be to continue the bold vision that he's had and to work with the UK Party to do that. Now, there's obviously um, a lot of fertile ground, as, as you mentioned, in Scotland um, for, for the Labour Party. Um, you, you know, there's a state of the education system, there's the backlogs in the NHS, um, there's some of the problems that we've, we've seen in the justice system. Um, how, do you go about, how do you go about winning back the trust of people who had traditionally voted Labour, but now sort of see everything through the prism of the Constitution? They see everything um, through... Um, Brexit and and uh, a second independence uh, referendum. How how do you go about winning those people back uh, on the big issues that, that that we all care about? I think we have to get out and in, into our communities and talk to people about about what it is that matters to them. But I also think we need to show them that the Scottish Parliament has a lot of powers that it can make um, that it can use at its disposal to make real change to the lives of people across Scotland. And sometimes I think it's easy for us just to say, "Oh, we'll blame we'll blame the Westminster government for something," and in Scotland we can't do anything about that. Um, I believe one of the one of the benefits um, of of being in the Labour Party is that that we that we can um, advocate for that change across the whole of the UK. So I will never narrow my ambitions for a socially just country to only the, the five and a half million people in Scotland. I want that for, for the people all across these islands and indeed the world. And so it's really important that, that I think that we come collectively to do that and try and make the change as big as we possibly can. But we also have to offer a bold a bold and radical vision for that. It's not enough just to say um, to to remain to you know we should stay in the UK and you don't need independence to do it. We need to show people that what we can do with the powers we have, and our our manifesto in in the May election I think shows that. 
um, are the social security recovery plan that, that I published during the election campaign shows that there are so much there is so much that we can do in Scotland and I think we just need to get out and tell people about that and listen to their views on it so that we can say actually we can really make the changes big changes to people's lives here in Scotland and we can do that by putting pressure on the on the Scottish government but we can also put pressure on the UK government too. And, and does that does that include uh, potentially working with the Lib Dems at Holyrood? I think we'll work with anyone um, who who will progress um, our agenda and who will progress uh, social justice and equality for people across Scotland. And that will, of course, include the Lib Dems. It, inclu- it includes a lot of members across across the Parliament in the in the eight weeks, nine weeks. I'm losing track of weeks. It's not many, um, but in, in the time that I've already been there, I've reached a crowd. I've reached across all. To, to all of the parties across the chamber to work together on various issues, um, including on amendments to the Coronavirus Act, and as, as you'll have seen, one of which passed. Um, so, it, you know, it's possible to, to bring everyone on board. And actually, the numbers in the Scottish Parliament this time round show that we're going to have to work together. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, COVID and the pandemic and, and the difficulties we've all had over the last uh, the last year to 18 months. I mean, what's it been like for you, you personally? I mean, has, has it been... Has it been more difficult for you as, as someone that's uh, a wheelchair user or were these the sort of challenges that you were already well used to facing? It's It's been probably like like that for everyone. Um, like for everyone, it's been one of the hardest years of our lives. Um, both my husband and I are in, are in wheelchairs and we rely on social care. Um, so one of the first things we had to do um, at the start of the pandemic was work out how we were going to keep our home safe but also how we were going to keep the people who came to care for us safe so we had to do things um like um plan for if everyone had to self-isolate for example um there are approximately seven households um within our household if that makes sense if you take in all the people who work with us so we had to make sure that those households were were kind of covid secure as well as ours and because we knew that if one part of the chain didn't didn't work properly um, and wasn't able to to follow the rules properly or wasn't protected appropriately, um, all of us would would have suffered. So we had to um, keep a quite a close knit. Um, we were lucky though; we were one of the groups of people that actually was able to retain our social care package during the pandemic. Thousands and thousands of disabled people across Scotland have not been able to do that, and are now facing a situation whereby the councils are saying to them, "Well, you managed without it during the COVID pandemic, so it doesn't look like you know um, you're you're." For now eligible for social care that is something that cannot be that cannot continue and cannot be accepted because everybody has put in place unique specific circumstances over the last year and for people who are told you can't get the care service that you need because um, it might not be safe to deliver it and so they've had to rely on their family they're doing that on the basis that this is a short-term solution it's not something that people should be relying on in longer term and so um, I'm increasingly worried about reports that people are being told you managed this year, therefore you no longer need a statutory service. So if the Scottish Parliament could collectively do do one thing uh, over the next five years that, that would, would make uh, life better for everyone, what, 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 what would you like to see happen? What do you think? Is, is there one thing that you would like to see the Scottish Parliament achieve? A minimum income guarantee for all of the people across Scotland. I think that we, we absolutely have to deliver that because if we don't, we have too many people living in poverty and we know that poverty holds people back. I, I think the start of that process is by making a minimum income an organising principle of government. So that means everyone, people working in social security, people working in transport, people working in housing, have a responsibility to make sure that they lift people out of poverty. So the transport minister, for example, should be making sure that transport is affordable to everyone. Um, 
And then you look to do that. You look to increase as many people's income as possible, including through um, guaranteeing that work pays by using all of the levers of the Scottish Parliament available to us to make sure that we have good and fair work that pays people well, that does not use um, zero hours contracts. And we should be using business support as well as um, social security powers, as well as um, procurement to make sure that that is the case. Um, and we have to do that, I think, all across Scotland. We need to look at how we lift the people furthest from economic equality up as a means to deliver that minimum income for them. So that includes students, disabled people, carers, um, because if we don't give them extra support and extra payments and loan, loan parents as well, um, they are going to face further disadvantage. So we need to make sure that we have a relentless focus on that over the next five years and deliver that within this parliamentary term. Pam, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends, because everybody has an interest in politics.